Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and today I have Ben Hardy, who's my companion in arms in producing a major market book on the who not how concept. Ben, I think we can talk about some of the thinking that you've had because the project is launched, the contract is signed with Hay House, a major publisher, a marketing publisher, a very odd creature, a publisher that actually markets like an entrepreneurial firm should. And you have our other great collaborator, Tucker Max, on this project. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about the teamwork that you had already established with Tucker and why there was a whole dimension that working with Tucker added to your ability to be a major market writer. Yeah, absolutely. So when I first heard Dan talk about Who Not How, I had only written one major book and I wrote that book entirely by myself. I had obviously engaged with consulting firms who help with the marketing, but I I was not as collaborative of, of a thinker. You know, I'm now in my second year of strategic coach and learning a lot about who not how as a principal. And part of that, so I began engaging with Tucker Max on my second major book, which was Personalities and Permanent. And he personally edited back and forth the whole book outside of my editor with my publisher. And working with someone who is so brilliant at books changed how I look at books. But I actually started working with Tucker after about seven or eight months of hashing through personalities and permanent by myself, once I started working with Tucker, the book was done in three months and it was way better than any of us expected. And so what's fun about, you know, one of Dan's ideas is that every time you start a new project, you start from a new platform. And so the fun part about this book, who not how is that I'm starting it from the get go with Tucker helping me frame out the table of contents Uh, We've actually already completed what I believe to be a really strong table of contents, which is the hardest part of creating a book. It's so fun. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that Dan talks about is just when you use who, not how, you get increased energy, excitement, and vision. And when you don't, you have a lot of dread time. And so I'm just having a lot more fun writing this book. The ideas are a lot of fun. And it's a lot of fun to go back and forth, even back and forth with you in these mm-hmm. interviews, mm-hmm. but also back and forth with Tucker in the actual execution of the project. It's easy. It reminds me of just kind of Joe Polish's concept of easy, lucrative, and fun. But mm-hmm. it's easy when you're working with someone who's so good at what they do, and it makes the ideas a lot of fun. So that's kind of where I'm at right now, Dan. Yeah, one of the things, and will include your willingness to have a collaborator like this as part of this conversation is what kind of mindset are you noticing that someone has where they're really open to collaboration? And by collaboration, I mean, you just get to do what you love doing. That's our unique ability concept from Strategic Coach. And then there's other stuff which to really put the emphasis on why you don't want to do this, we call it crappy stuff. So what is the crappy stuff that was always hard labor for you if you compare the first book that you wrote compared to what happened immediately when you had the collaboration with a great who, so Tucker is the great who on this project. So what was your total focus then? Obviously, unique ability. And what was the unique ability that Tucker brought to the project? Because really, it's unique ability with unique ability that we're talking about. You're not taking stuff you don't like and giving it to somebody else who doesn't like it either, but they don't have the same status as you or you're paying them to do it. 
you're actually taking something that you're not really good at so you can focus on just what you're great at and you're finding someone else who's actually great at what you're not great at and that's what they would love to do. Yeah. So what's the mindset? I guess that's one of the mindsets, but what was your willingness to do it? Just desperation and fatigue? <laughs> no, I, well, no, I think a lot of it was ambition. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I wanted to do better work and I saw that I was my own bottleneck in creating something as good as I wanted mm-hmm. it to. You know, it's that whole idea. There's a, there's a really good quote from a guy named Ira Glass. It's called The Gap. Have you ever heard of that? No. I'll send you a link sometime. You'll really like it. I know the gap. Yeah, yeah. So this is a different <laughs> gap. He talks about how for a creative person, the gap is when you're looking at your own work and you know that it's not as good as it could be, but that you know you have good taste. Like, you know that your work is trying to be good, <laughs> but you know it's not where you want it to be yet. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where I was at with my creation. Like, my own ambitions are very big, and I knew that I was kidding myself if I wanted to get there by myself, you know, and I was also stuck, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think part of the mindset is, you know, letting go of the idea that I can do it all myself. It's that rugged individualism. Yeah. It's being willing to engage and invest, you know, I mean, it, it costs money to actually work with someone like Tucker Max. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people are kind of cheap in their mindset and it stops them from working with experts And so I just decided I'm just going to hire someone who's brilliant and I'm just going to actually do this at a level that's at the level of my ambition. Mm -hmm. And so that was part of it. And also Mm -hmm. just knowing that I didn't know what I was doing, just saying there is someone who's way better than this at me. I might as well work with them. Yeah. Well, there's kind of a truth telling about this. You know, I'm constantly struck by, you know, my notion of what Dan is capable of right now compared to 25 years ago. So we just completed the 30th year, our anniversary was a couple of days ago for 30 years of the Strategic Coach Program. So it's kind of interesting. Something has really multiplied and something has really decreased of my notion who I am now compared to 1989. And it has to do with the fact that I know I'm really great with coming up with very innovative ideas, entrepreneurial ideas that I can very quickly test against 500 entrepreneurs to see whether it's real or not real and whether it's really useful. So uh, the more I'm freed up just to do that, just to test out new ideas. And the other thing is, because I was an advertising copywriter, I'm really good at turning out writing projects that can be done within 90 days, within 90 days but I don't have any gas in the tank for anything that takes longer than 90 days. And I know that that disqualified me immediately from the major book market, okay? So I'm the master of the small book that can be produced in 90 days for a specific audience that I already knew. If you ask me to do a book that's gonna go out into the world and it's gonna find all sorts of audiences, I'm ignorant, I'm completely ignorant. I recognize that and I think so my willingness when I met you and we met at Joe Polish's Genius Network, in the back of my mind, I had already said, unless I have a person like this in my life, I'm never gonna write a major book. When you came up and you know you had demonstrated what your approach was 
with one of the biggest blog platforms in the world and how you had thought it through. And I said, here's my guy, here's my guy. And the whole point is that I'm completely willing to give over all decision-making about the project once it leaves my hands, you know, because not only do I not have the capabilities to do it, I don't even know what capabilities are required. I'm perfectly okay with that. I'm perfectly okay with the fact that I don't know any of these things because that's your realm. And I think what you've just said, well, that's your whole attitude towards Tucker too. That's his realm. You know, what's so interesting is that it really clarifies that there are incredible nuances of expertise when it comes to this, because the truth is, is that you write books, I write books and Tucker writes books, but our unique abilities are incredibly different and complementary. And so, you know, someone might say, one of the important factors here is that our ambition collectively is very big. It's a big success, which is why we're all coming together for a single project, is that we see a lot of vision and potential here for all of us. And we believe that the ideas are exciting, but someone who has maybe less vision or maybe are less of a who thinker would just say, you know what, I write books, so I can just write the book. But what's so interesting is you have your own process, which creates an outcome, which is, you know, you keep coming up with ideas. I have my own process, which is looking at what you do. And I'm thinking about how to make this as compelling as possible and as transformational as possible to bigger audiences. Mm -hmm. And Tucker, who's also a book writer, has an incredibly nuanced skill around books that's totally different from my skill, which allows Mm -hmm. this book to actually be as successful as possible. And so what's interesting is, is that from an outside perspective, the three of us may be doing the same thing when in reality, it's so different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's almost cubed. <laughs> I think the two of us together can produce a squared results, you know, like two times two equals four. But when you add another two to it, it's now eight. And I think there's an exponential quality about it. I have to tell you, I mean, we're talking about mindset here is that I trust everybody in the collaboration so completely that it's doing it in a way that I would never have thought about is what I'm counting on. In other words, the two of you together are going to transform it in a way that I couldn't possibly have thought of. That's the reason why I haven't produced a major market book before. And the reason is I don't even know how to think about it, nor do I want to learn how to think about it because you already have. One of the things that you told me in the beginning of this project, which blew my mind, you know, and I've told a lot of people about this, you know, when you kind of essentially gave me the permission to just be me and use my unique ability on this project. And you said, Ben, I have no idea how to make these kind of books. I have no clue. How could I coach you through this process when you're the expert? You know, <laughs> And I'm like, oh, oh okay, you're right. Yeah. I need to get out of my own way now and just use my unique ability and just, you know, own this project. And so... A big part of it is obviously working with people you trust, but also getting out of the way and letting the who do the mm-hmm. how. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. There's a couple of things that I was thinking about, you know, that is probably a couple of things that are useful for you when you're thinking through this process. And I have two what I think are kind of major frameworks that when I'm approaching anything new that's going to be communicated out to entrepreneurs. And there are two acronyms. One of them is called DOS and the other one is called VODA. 
DOS is the information I have to know about who is reading the book that tells me whether what I'm going to do is of any value to that person. And the way I look at my readers and the way I look at my strategic coach clients is that they're in the center of their own universe and every day they're dealing with certain dangers that could threaten their success. And dangers can come in any form and it's always about a possible loss. Danger is really about loss and that they could lose something, you know, they could lose their health, they could lose their family, they could lose their life. But more specifically to entrepreneurism, they could lose opportunity, they could lose customers, they could lose staff, they could lose market position because of sudden change in technology or new competition. The opportunities, so if danger is about losses, opportunity, so D-O, opportunity is the possible gain of something and anything you could be fearful about losing you could also be excited about gaining you know because it has value to you again this is strictly from the other person's point of view it has nothing to do with me it's not about what product i have what service i have or what it is i'm going to create for them so i have to really really know how they're seeing the universe entirely from their standpoint and the last one has strengths and this is capabilities that they have and everybody has the dream of sort of maximizing your capabilities you know i i'm this good but i know i'm not really totally utilizing all my capabilities. So I can spend a long time when I meet someone where I just ask them about, you know, three years from now, if you're looking at your future, what has to happen for you to feel happy with your progress? They being the expert, there's only one expert on someone else's happiness, and that's them. So I simply say, so what dangers do you have right now that have to be eliminated, opportunities that have to be captured and strengths that have to be maximized over the next three years. And I let them talk. I've detached myself entirely from their conversation in the sense that it's not about me at all. It's strictly about them. But at the end of it, I can see where I have something that might be useful to that other person. So when we talk about entrepreneurs and who, not how, I'm looking at an entrepreneur, and I know the entrepreneurs have bigger and better ambitions. They have bigger goals for themselves. But my feeling is that the DOS, that the ambitions are actually the fulfillment of their DOS vision for themselves. It's actually the dangers they have now don't exist. The opportunities have been captured and their strengths have been maximized. And then and only then can I actually see whether... I have a capability or I have a resource or I have a solution that I can actually provide with them. So it's not about my goal here, it's about their goals. And my goal is to be useful if I truly can be useful or connect them with someone else who can actually be useful to them. But my main mindset here is just usefulness. So I think that's very, very important about what we're talking about here with Who Not How. I've just been inside the minds of close to seven or 8,000 entrepreneurs over the last 45 years, and I've learned how to look at every one of their internal visions with just this DOS, Dangers, Opportunities, Strengths framework. Yeah, so why I asked this question, you know, I was wondering how do these mental frameworks that you use apply to who, not how, is because there's a couple different angles to look at it, but you know your audience so well as far as the dangers, the opportunities, and the things that they're trying to accomplish. 
And because you know their vision, your job is to be the hero to them. Your job mm -hmm. is to help them eliminate their dangers, increase their opportunities. But because you know what your audience wants, you can then build a team of who's to help you execute mm -hmm. on helping them achieve that goal, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So my who's are the people who can multiply my value in the lives of these individuals. And then I have all sorts of collaborations of people who can supply other things to them. You know, because everybody's universe is 360 degrees. It's not just my particular thing that they think about. You know, I was talking to a financial advisor who was one of my clients and, you know, he was, well, he says, you know, they need insurance. And I said, yeah, I said, I, I bet just about every person I know when they celebrate New Year's, they say to themselves, you know what, I just don't have enough in my life right now is uh, I just haven't met enough insurance agents. You know, I just <laughs> got to get out there and meet more insurance agents. I, and I said, nobody, uh, they're trying to get through their life without meeting you. I said, so you can't talk about what it is that you want to sell to them. You can't talk about what you want them to buy. You have to ask them about what it is that they're trying to accomplish in life, period. And the more that you can just, what I would say, suspend your own deal, suspend your own goals, and just enter into their world, then you can increase your usefulness. Just by listening with an open mind, you're being extraordinarily useful because they'll feel the lack of agenda. You know, People are very good at picking up on whether someone else has an agenda or not. But if you kind of tell them, you know, for the next half hour, hour, I don't have any agenda, but to get clear about what it is that you're trying to accomplish in your life. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I quickly noticed about you, Dan, like thinking, for example, your collaboration with Peter Diamandis or even Joe, is that you're interested in providing increased capability to your audience, which is entrepreneurs. And mm -hmm. a lot of these capabilities, for example, the Peter capability that you're helping him develop, you don't actually get a financial return for that, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think a part of the who mindset is abundance. You're very much focused on being useful and helpful to your audience, the people you want to be a hero to. And you're so interested in that that you're very willing to send them and direct them to other resources that are outside of strategic coach mm -hmm. to help them increase their entrepreneurial capability. So I don't know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that abundance perspective. Yeah, well, the whole point is that in the case of Peter Diamandis, I just consider him probably the most plugged up entrepreneurial scout, entrepreneurial explorer in the world. I think that he probably talks to more people every week, month, and quarter about new breakthroughs in technology and how those technologies are connecting with each other than anyone else on the planet. I've been reading about technology for 45 years, and I simply haven't come across his equal in terms of sensing that something new is happening here, and then he finds out who the person is, and then he connects that person with other people. And I said, I would love to have that kind of technological insight and overlook in strategic coach, but I can't do it. It's not my field. So if I can just collaborate with Peter and together we can create a forum each year and we do it every January for three days in Beverly Hills, California, then I'll just work with Peter to kind of create what the structure looks like then my clients can sign up for it, you know, those who choose that they're really fascinated with us and they go out. And it's like I've created a whole new capability 
for a strategic coach that I couldn't do myself and I couldn't pay someone to be inside my company and actually do that. It would have to be outside my company. And I did it and we're into our ninth year right now and it's been great for Peter, it's been great for me, but I think it's been great for all the strategic coach clients who take that opportunity every January to bring themselves up to date on technologies that would be useful for them. So the whole emphasis is that they're going to learn something during three days that they could actually implement during the next year that would make a exponential difference in some part of their company. So that's really it. So I'm just combining my capability with his capability because I have a capability of putting butts in seats. If I'm really interested in something, I bring a lot of other people along with me, but my whole understanding of technology has multiplied over the period of the collaboration. So I feel I'm a total winner. And the truth is we've had about you know, probably 50 people, maybe 60 people from Peter's world who have signed up for a strategic coach. So there's a financial reward for us. And they take to the program extremely well, you know, when they come in because they already have technology kind of handled. Now they're coming for the kind of thinking that we do in strategic coach. And with Joe, Joe and I with Genius Network, I recommend people to his program and he recommends people to my program. We have this sort of like Abbott and Costello thing. He says, well, I always recommend that they go to coach first because they'll get their act together and then they'll be more open to marketing. I said, well, I always recommend that they go to Genius Network first because they'll learn marketing and they'll come into the program and they'll succeed much more quickly because they know marketing. But it's not even a handshake. It's a fist pump, you know, in both cases, in both cases. With Peter... I told him, I won't do it unless you do it for 25 years. And in a flash, he just changed. Okay, we're going to do it for 25 years. So I said, what else are you going to do for 25 years? So part of it, what this who, not how makes is you have to have a long-term vision of where you're going. And you have to have a picture of a result that you personally, individually could not get that result without massive cooperation with other people, massive teamwork. So my vision is very, very big about where I'm gonna be. I'm 75 and I have a big, big vision of age 100, where I'm gonna be at age 100. And it's massively bigger than where we are right now at the 30 year mark of coach. So why do you think that kind of connecting the idea of massive vision with 25 years, why is 25 years so key for you? Well. If anybody looks back 25 years who's listening to this and think about it, that who you thought you were going to be in the future, I bet your present state far exceeds where you thought you were going to be 25 years ago. So 25 years is an exponential planning period. It's almost scary to plan that far ahead because it can be so big. Like your vision can be huge with 25 years. Well, first of all, Ben, you're 31 and you probably weren't really conscious till you were six because, so <laughs> you're just getting used to the notion of what 25 years is anyway, you know? I mean, so you're, it's like talking to a two-year-old about Christmas is only six months away. It's a quarter of their entire lifetime, you know? <laughs> you know? Oh, it's just six months, uh, six months, Jesus. It's, it's, it's a quarter of my lifetime, you know? It's a long ways off. But the thing about this is that Thinking 25 years actually allows you to just focus on the present. 
Okay, and the reason is because if you know what you're committed to as a result 25 years from now, that means you can ignore about 90% of what's gonna happen in the world around you. You're only looking for the things that are relevant to who you're gonna be 25 years. And then if you can key it, that you want to be a hero to a particular type of person right now, but that's also true 25 years from now. So as much of a hero as I am to entrepreneurs at age 75, I want to be an exponentially more useful hero when I'm age 100. So there's no slowing down in my growth in this area. It's beautiful. So is there any other mindsets that you want to talk about? Yeah, well, I'd say VODA. VODA is really the key. And I've really given a lot of thought to this, that all people who achieve, achieve in exactly the same way. And this is what I've discovered. And, you know, I just happen to have focused on primo achievers, entrepreneurs, compared to the general population, just happen to be much bigger achievers than most people. We all do it, and it's vision-driven that we have an unusual muscle in our brain where we can visualize who we're going to be in the future, okay? And we can do this with a real sense of transformation. In other words, it actually fits in with your two first books with, you know, willpower doesn't work. Vision is not about willpower. Vision is actually having a very, very clear consciousness of who you are in the future, okay? And in order to do that, you have to know really what is it about you that really deserves to be in the future because part of you deserves to be let off the bus right now. And that relates to your other book, The Personality. Oftentimes we think we're our personality, but our personality has simply been the scaffolding we had to create to get our building of life till this point. At a certain point, why don't we just take the scaffolding down, you know, and build a bigger thing? So I have a very, very clear picture of what part of Dan is always true, and I'm just projecting that into the future. And what part of that is true about me is that I have certain capabilities that are extraordinarily useful to other people. And anything else is kind of extraneous, you know, anything else about me. So my status is extraneous to me. You know, I lead a comfortable life, but I don't really have any further goals than the ones that we've already achieved. There's a reputation, but I only want the reputation. I mean, the only improvement is that it's even better and more people know about it, you know, and I can do that with projects like the ones I have with you and Tucker. So my whole point is I'm really simple. I'm really simple at this point. So I have a vision of myself in 2044, I'll be 100 years old, and then there are obstacles that I can immediately see, and this is where the who, not how comes in, because, for example, I really do have to be a major media person to get where I want. I mean, there, my ideas really have to be big in the world, and I need other capabilities that are uniquely different from mine, but uniquely better than anything that I've ever experienced before in order to get there. So that's the who. You need unique abilities in that area. Yeah, I need unique abilities, yeah. And the whole point is that I want the individuals that I collaborate to be every bit as good in their realm as I am in my realm. That's what I feel here. 
It's almost like Euclidean geometry at this point. I was a great fan of geometry when I learned geometry. And I said, these are basic building blocks. There's no fooling around with them. You either have the building block or you don't have the building. It's not emotional in that sense. It's that you got to tell the truth where your ability ends and where somebody else's ability starts. And you have to be really, really clear about the border between the two of you. And once you hand the project over the border, it's in their realm, it's under their control, it's under their creativity, it's not yours anymore. If you did a good job, what's really valuable about the project will grow as a result of how they transform the project. So that's the obstacles. I have obstacles, and they're all capability obstacles. I don't have any other obstacles except capability obstacles. And they're not that I'm deficient, I'm perfectly good in my realm but I don't have to really think about that anymore. I'm good with who Dan is. You know, I don't need a better brain. I just need a bigger mind. And what I be in my mind, I need to connect with a lot of other brains who have just as much a passion, just as much a vision, just as much, you know, uniqueness about what they do as I do myself. And that's what I'm looking for right now. And that's the transformation. And the transformation is really in how far can you go beyond yourself and include other people's capabilities in your vision of the future. And then, you know, the action. So vision, opposition, transformation, and action. And my belief is that that's how all achievement on the planet takes place. Anybody who achieves something, it's through vision, Dealing truthfully with the obstacles, being willing to tell the truth about yourself and what's needed, and then that transforms the vision into other people's capabilities, then that's a teamwork action that actually achieves it. So will you explain a little bit more the process of transformation to action? So basically the relationship and the collaboration, when you start getting who's involved, who have the capabilities that then can knock out your obstacles. How does that transform things? First of all, it's a really great question. And I think there's a magic there that if you're the one who has to learn the hows, you're actually just bringing the past into the future. <laughs> you know, it's gold. You know, it's like somebody who's got all their possessions in garbage bags, you know. And it's now taking up five shopping carts. Okay. And if you want to move to the next block, I tell you, it's like the invasion of Normandy. You've really got to think it through getting your five shopping carts with your, and, you know, this again relates to your willpower and personality thing. You know, people have so much baggage tied up with their past identity that it's a miracle that they can get till next year. <laughs> well, one of the things you're helping me understand with this is that in order for you to achieve your 25 year vision and actually get through the obstacles, you're going to have to transform. Yeah. Dan in 25 years from now is going to have radically different vision and capabilities than he has now. Just like you mentioned 25 years ago, you couldn't have even imagined what you'd be thinking about creating and doing right now and collaborating with. And so the transformation mm -hmm. is what is happening to all involved in getting through the obstacles. And it happens through action, right? Yeah. And the truth is, you know, what I was really great at 25 years ago is far, far better today. But I've shed an enormous amount of other thoughts about, you know, what I might do and everything. So for example, I'm a trained artist, but I have computer artists now 
who can massively transform a simple scrawl on a piece of paper into a full drawing. And I've gotten to the point with my artists where I don't even do my own drawing anymore. I just talk them through. They can do it right on the screen with me talking to them. And then the small books, I'm a trained writer, but I don't write anymore, okay? I do really good outlines. I think through you know, a new idea and the mindsets that are connected. And all my books are mindset-driven. It's the mindsets that support a new idea. And then I'm just interviewed. I'm interviewed and they're transcribed and then I have a writer. And and here's the interesting thing is in the last five little books I've done, I've been working with the writer for about 14 of the books. So I do one a quarter. They're very small books. They're 44 pages. Format's exactly the same, name number of pages. And you have to get the idea across in 44 pages. And then we have cartoons to support it. And we have you know, an audio interview and then a video that supports it. So it's a package of different ways of communicating. But the last five books, I haven't changed a word that he's written. And it's come back sometimes. And I said, well, gee, it's amazing what he did with that. You know, I said, it's not anything that I could have done, but it really, really works, you know. And I've seen the confidence grow because when there's no changes five times in a row, the writer's confidence really grows. You know, and the editor, they're a brother-sister act, Carrie and Adam Morrison, and they just work as a team. They've worked over the years as an editor-writer team, and I just trust them inherently that even though I wouldn't have actually written it that way and everything else, I said, you know, it really works. I really like that. I really like what they've done. That's a part of a transformation that you trust that the reality outside of yourself is as good as the reality inside yourself. I think that's a transformative mindset if you're gonna be a really great who not how collaborator in the world, that you have to trust that in this person's realm, they're just as big a star as you are in your realm. You know, it's so fascinating, and I've talked to you about this, Dan. You would really like the work of Robert Keegan. Robert Keegan was a Harvard psychologist, and he created a lot of frameworks for individuals and organizations. But every time I hear you talk about this, he has this three-step concept, which is similar to the three-step concept of Stephen Covey. So Covey's three-step cup was dependence, independence, interdependence. What Keegan developed was a similar three-step model, but it really explains what you're describing as the transformational self. So basically his first step is what's called the socializing self, which is where you're entirely dependent on what other people want. So you actually don't have an identity. (laughs) You're just like, you're trying to fit in with your friends and you'll do whatever they want you to do. You're just dependent. The next level up is what he calls the authoring self, which is essentially where you have a vision for your future, but you have no ability to allow that future Mm -hmm. to be transformed through collaboration. Like that's your goal. You're what you would call a rugged individualist Mm -hmm. where it's just like, this is what I want and I'm going to do it my way. And it's, and the highest level, which Keegan finds only about 8% of individuals and organizations get to is what he calls the transforming self. And the transforming self is where multiple people come together with a shared vision and they know that the vision is what brings them together. And because they're collaborating, they don't fully know exactly what it's going to mm-hmm. look like in the end, but they know that given the collaboration, that it's going to transform into something above and beyond what any of them could have conceived themselves. Yeah. And so the collaboration itself creates, it's that whole idea that the whole is different and better than the sum of the parts. And so when you're collaborating with the right people and you have that mindset, you don't know exactly what the outcome is going to look like fully, 
but you know that the transformation is going to be better than you could have created on your own. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking of the three steps that he's talking about. The first two is that you're kind of transactional, you know. 100% transactional. Yeah, it's transactional. And people mistake collaboration because I think collaboration is a lot of people say, well, you mean cooperation? I said, no, cooperation is just basically dealing with each other. <laughs> well, taking what already exists and kind of putting it together that overall you're not conflicting it as much. But I don't see anything new being created. I don't see anything surprising being created out of that. And the whole point is the new and surprising for me. Totally. You know? Yeah. So I was just talking to someone who is not in my program, but is in one of the other coaches program, but I've met him and he oftentimes comes into our office a day before his workshop and I was talking to him and he said, we were talking, three of us last night, how you always seem to reinvent yourself continually every quarter. And he says, well, how do you do that? He says, what kind of research do you have? And I said, well, I've got a mindset. And that is that when I prepare for a new workshop, and as we're talking here, Ben, I'm actually two weeks away from introducing the next quarter's workshop. So I've been busily coming up with new thinking exercises on the concept of always being the buyer. I've been sharing that idea with a lot of people. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah but always, always being the buyer. And I said, and as good as this workshop is, when I presented for the first time in the first workshop, I'm only at the 50% line because the other 50% that's needed is actually the response of the entrepreneurs in the room. I said, one of the things is that I don't fall in love with my ideas before my customers fall in love with the idea. <laughs> and I said, and they love it in a different way than I love it. I'm always really super alert, probably for the first five or six workshops, of they like it, but they don't like it in the way I thought they were going to like it. Totally. And the way they like it is better than the way that I liked it. So, Well, and you're surprised by how the idea transforms when it yeah. comes from them back to you. Yeah. You're like, wow, that was different than I was expecting. And, I, and you love the transformation. Yeah. And it's like the writer, you know, it's coming back. So, you know, I know you and Tucker are busy getting the whole book structured right now. And I'm sure when you show me the contents, I said, wow, 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 that's really, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, that's really quite amazing. But it's a thrill to me. You know, it's a thrill to me. And I have to tell you, I think that one of the reasons that people age and die, so I'm 75, and I'm really noticing that, you know, I was telling people, I said, if you want to compete, wait till you're competing with other 75-year-olds. I said, it's pretty easy pickings at 75. <laughs> Most of the people your age are sitting in a wheelchair and like burned out. <laughs> yeah, well, I looked at the 1944 numbers and 20% of people born in the States in 1944 are dead. Another 30% are acting as if they're dead. And, you know, and another 25% are getting ready to die. And I said, you know, there's lots of reasons for it, too numerous and too complicated to actually say you know anything about this. But I think one of the big reasons is that people stop being surprised. They stop being thrilled. And I think the constant possibility of being thrilled and surprised by something that you created coming back to you in another form keeps you very young. I think that what you just said actually is so much more profound than it actually like like think about that for a second 
the older people get, the more routine. So one of the big concepts of personality is that it becomes increasingly stabilized over time, you know, and the reason it becomes increasingly stabilized over time is because people's routines and identities kind of get locked in place and they stop putting themselves in new situations. They stop being surprised. And what I love about what you're doing is, is you're actively putting yourself in a creative state where you don't know what's coming back to you. You're incredibly open to new ideas and new experiences. Mm -hmm. And the research actually shows that as people age, they become less and less open to new ideas, to being surprised. And Mm -hmm. they actively avoid Mm -hmm. surprise and new ideas. Yeah. You know, so I've taken a look at that because I have some big longevity goals. But my feeling is that the body takes its cues from the mind. The body takes, you know, from your brain. The body takes its cues from your imagination. I think it takes cues from your goals and from your imagination. And your goals are to live to 156. Yeah. And so that's shaping your identity, your physiology, your everything about you. Yeah. But what I'm most interested in is just the psychology of how you do that, because I think the medicine is going to be there. I mean, I'm quite confident that, you know, the age stopping and the age reversing technology is going to be there because there's so many people interested in this and investing in it that I think that some extraordinary breakthroughs are going to happen. But my feeling is that fundamentally it's not a physical problem, it's a psychological problem. It's actually an emotional problem. And you may have the means to live a long time, but you don't have the emotions and psychology for it and you don't have the vision for it, you don't have the mindset for it. So my feeling is that the one thing I know is going to keep me really young, and I feel actually quite a bit younger, and I look quite a bit younger if you look at photos from 30 years ago when we started. I actually look quite a bit younger than I did 30 years ago, certainly in far better physical shape than I was there. But one of the things that really strikes me about that is my one focus is now just usefulness, just usefulness. How can Dan be a more useful person? And I want that to be exponentially more useful. And I don't feel that that's a personality issue. It's just a knowledge of where it is that I already am useful that can expand and multiply. I think that's my identity right now is just the usefulness. I think so. Well, there's a few things. I think that part of it is usefulness. And the other part of it is, is that you love to expand and transform. Yeah. And so the two go hand in hand, because the more useful you are, the more you can transform, you know, and expand through the process of helping others and being useful. The byproduct of you being useful to exponentially more people is, is that you transform to that process. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. And the thing is that You're more known to them and they're more known to you, you know, as you go along. So it's not a lonely venture. It's just the opposite. It's actually a vast network because if I, as a human being, am able to think this way, I think lots of other human beings are thinking this way. Well, I'm just going to tell you, (laughs) I know that our time here is done, but that idea of surprise as a potential key to longevity, I'm just going to tell you, I'm planting it in your mind, even though it's an idea that is already yours. I actually think that that's a much bigger idea. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when I hear that, it's almost as powerful as when I first heard Who Not How. And I'm mm-hmm. just like, I actually know that there's something very deep and powerful within that single idea. One last thought just for you is I just want to let you know, I, I sent you and Babs the current table of contents to Who Not How. Oh, Look at I, it whenever you want. No rush. I just wanted you to see it. And no, speaking from a, no, a transformation no. perspective, when I first sent the table of contents to Tucker, I had no idea what his feedback was going to be. 
and what it led it to become. And speaking of surprise, I just love what my perspective and vision of the book is becoming because I sent it to a who, who then transformed my initial concept back to me. And it's becoming increasingly more useful and valuable. So anyways, thank you for this amazing call. It's been fun. Yeah, we covered a lot of interesting territory, but now that you've given me the feedback, I think it's the unwillingness to being surprised. I'm telling you, Dan, that's a big, important idea. Like I'm gonna spend some time thinking about it, but that you actively want to be surprised One of the things I found with people who transform is that their expectations are shattered over and over again. And so, you know, they put themselves in situations where their current paradigm is shattered and they actually undervalue their current paradigm knowing that their future paradigm is gonna be different. Whereas most people, they overvalue their current perspective and they try to cling to it. Mm -hmm. And so what you're doing is you're actively shattering your own paradigm and being surprised over and over and over and it transforms (laughs) you (laughs) and it makes you younger. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. Thanks, Ben. 